Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. I want to welcome all of our new radio listeners on 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire. Really excited to be on the air in the Gate City in New Hampshire and, of course, on 1450 AM and 103.9 FM, as we have been for many, many years. And for our podcast listeners, look, you're subscribed, you're listening. If you're not subscribed and you're just hearing this episode for the first time, please get subscribed. And of course, leave us a rating and review. It really does help us out. Well, it has been a heck of a week in American politics and for the Democratic Party in particular. Election Day 2021 for Democrats, was a bit like discovering a leak in your roof. Not only was the damage pretty bad this time, but you know that the next storm is probably going to be much worse if you don't fix things soon. And then merely days later, Democrats suddenly ended the Dems in disarray narrative by striking a deal on the Build Back Better framework and the infrastructure bill, which they promptly passed. And now it looks like from the economic numbers, happy times are here again. So the question is, are Democrats in a political rut that they won't be able to recover from by 2022? Or have they begun to take steps in the direction of a comeback, an epic, massive political comeback in the election a year out from now? To answer those questions, I have, I'm really, really excited about this. I have the consummate Democratic insider's insider. Look, in politics, there are the names you know that the public follows. They're the politicians, the, the big name office holders and people who run for seats. Then there are the people behind the people. You hear about some of them from time to time, right? The, the David Pluff types. Some of them become media celebrities. Then there are the people behind the people behind the people who really pull the strings and make all the big decisions. Adnan Muslim is the consummate one of those people behind the people. He is a partner at Deliver Strategies. He is a longtime operative practitioner of the dark arts. I mean, he only does good things, but I'm gonna call it the dark arts of American politics. And someone that major politicians who you've heard of listen to and go to for their political advice, Mayor-elect of Boston, Michelle Wu, Senator Raphael Warnock, and of course, Senator Elizabeth Warren, all count on Adnan Muslim. I've worked with him many times in my career, and it's a delight to have you on Beyond Politics. Adnan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's always good to be with you, so I'm happy to be on. It's a pleasure, and uh, now we get to do something kind of fun. From time to time, you and I get to catch up and talk about politics. Now we get to do it on the air, on broadcast, and on podcast, and, you know, just kind of kick things around. And this is really the kind of discussion that we have behind closed doors. All right. Let me. Plus, I've always with. been told I have a face for radio. So now I can prove it. So. You know what the worst thing is, is that Paul <laughs> makes that joke every week. And oh, I caught no. it from him. I caught it from Paul Hodes. And he's and, not and, even here. And I made a joke that he here. would make. I know. Paul, my <laughs> usual co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes, to whom Adnan was a, a major consultant in his career, um, is off today. And so anyway, you just get me. All right, Adnan, look, I got to ask the burning question in politics of the week. So to sum it up, in Politico over the weekend, David Siders wrote the following. He said, the difficulty conducting a postmortem 
after an election like last week's is that the losses were so widespread that it's hard to pin defeat on any one thing. Democrats were reading Virginia like a Rorschach test. Progressive Democrats saw the election as a rebuke of the corporate wing of the party and Clinton-esque Democrats like Terry McAuliffe. Centrists saw it as a revolt against the wokeism of the left. For rural Democrats, the election confirmed that Democrats need to focus more on voters outside of cities. And for urban Democrats, it confirmed the need for Congress to pass legislation that might appeal to the party's, insert urban here, base. So Adnan, what did happen in the elections last week? Are any of those groups of Democrats right in their conjecture about what, what the cause was? What was going on? So I always find it interesting because the short answer to your question is, yes, all of those groups are right and all of those groups are wrong. It is always a little of column A, B, C, D, and E. It's not, it, it was not any one thing. If there was one thing that correlates is that it is a, you know, a party out of power after pre- pre- the presidency's changed hands. And we've seen historically that leads to losses like what we saw. You combine that with fat folks have been watching for this past year, you know, seeing the proverbial sausage get made watching Democrats from, if you really chart this out from sort of Afghanistan withdrawal to now, you've had, you know, between that plus, you know, watching the sausage get made, you know, things haven't been great until, as you pointed out, um, you know, a little bit of a, of a, of good news on Friday, but, you know, things largely what they've folks have seen is, you know, things not, not getting done. And if that's the narrative, you know, it's uh, that plus all the historic factors I mentioned, then you've got a recipe for some tough losses. So I could tell kind of two different stories about last Tuesday. I could tell the story of, well, look, I mean, there were different things clearly going on in the big gubernatorial and state legislative races in Virginia and New Jersey, all the reporting out of Virginia was like, oh, it's education. Maybe it's critical race theory and education. It's kind of this pushback against Democrats seeming intransigence about how much of a role parents should get in their kids' education. That seems to be the hot button. Well, that really wasn't the issue in New Jersey. In New Jersey, it was much more about taxes and kind of more traditional Republican size of government type issues. And so, you know, you could tell the story here of eh, lots of different things going on. Maybe it's just the underlying dynamics of, like you said, the the cycle and the party out of power is going to have a little bit of a comeback. On the other hand, things did not go well everywhere. And, you know, per that quote that I read a moment ago, you could say that Democrats have a baseline brand problem, that they're, they look too woke, they look too progressive, they look too darn liberal. Do either of those explanations resonate with you more? So, look, I don't think there is a massive brand problem. Um, look, let's take a step back for a minute. We have a party out of power that a majority of that party believes that the election was stolen from them. So start in that place. What we saw was in New York, in, in sorry, New Jersey and in Virginia, we saw incredible rural turnout, right? I haven't had a chance to dig into all the numbers yet, but 
all the folks smarter than you or I, well, at least me, uh, will tell you that rural turnout was incredibly high. If you talk to the McCullough folks, they got two, I mean, factually, they got 200,000 votes more than Northam did. Now, what is that? Does that matter? Not even a little bit. It doesn't matter because every election is different, whatever. But just to give you a sense of sort of what they were looking at, they were looking at, from their theory of the case, if you're going to get 200,000 votes more than Northam, you would think that you're in pretty good shape. Now, as it turns out, that's wrong because the Republicans were able to get a ton more votes out of the rural areas. So, But start with that, right? I think we're kind of in all the issue sort of debate over CRT and everything else. We're missing, I think a lot of analysts are missing sort of the fundamental factors, which is they are really angry, <laughs> right? Like they're angry, they're fired up. I mean, they believe, a lot of folks believe that an election was stolen. I may think that's completely ridiculous, um, you know, but the reality is there are folks out there who believe that and they're, you know, they're, they're expressing that anger at the polls partially. And two, as I said, you know, the obvious answer is often the right one. You have an administration that is struggling. Um, you know, what was the the president's approval rating this morning? I believe was I thought, I thought I saw 38. Yep. 38. Um, you know, with 64% saying they don't want him to run for re-election. I mean, that's those two factors, combine those two factors, it answers most of your questions. I'm curious why the president's approval rating is so low. I, you know, one thing that analysts in politics, sports, really anything, business tend to do is they tend to make consequence-free predictions because no one calls back to their wrong predictions. Everyone says, you know, hey, you know what I said six months ago that turned out to be right? Well, I would like to go ahead and go out on a limb and call back to a prediction I made that was wrong. It was just flat out wrong. Six months ago, I said, look, President Biden's approval rating is around 53%. And I think if we've learned something in recent years, it's that there's a certain stability to Joe Biden. Voters see him a certain way. They know him. And I think his, his approval rating is going to be pretty resilient. The inverse was certainly true with Donald Trump. He was in a very narrow band. He, could, he couldn't fall below 38, couldn't really rise above 44. He was always right in that band. And I said, look, I think Joe Biden, it's going to be the same story. He's going to be in this narrow band around 50%. Well, that's not what happened, clearly. Um, he has fallen significantly. We have that confirmed across multiple polls and polling averages. But at the same time, it's a little baffling to many of us who say, okay, there was a lot of bad news in Afghanistan in August. On the other hand, look at where we are. In the second quarter of this year, we caught up to the GDP that we had before the pandemic. Job numbers have been steadily improving. And at this point, Americans are by and large flush with cash and well-employed. And if they're not employed, they, they could choose to be employed. And so Americans financially, economically are in a pretty good position. We are essentially at peace. Why do you think there has been this, this turn, this backlash against the president? And do you think it's long-term? Do you think it can be clawed back? So uh, let me take the second part of that. I think it can be clawed back. 
um, and it's clawed back with sustained economic growth, right? Like, I mean, you need to see more of it. Yes, you're right. The, the news, I mean, the, the numbers are starting to look good. The number, the employment numbers at the end of last week were excellent. Um, you would need to keep seeing that. I think part of the problem is, is that you have a little bit of a disconnect between the numbers and what people are seeing, hearing, and focusing on, right? What they are seeing, when they what they are feeling is when they go to the grocery store, stuff costs more, right? And, and that is their direct line, or they're hearing about supply chain problems and things like that, where they're the things that people talk about on a day-to-day basis. It is very rare that folks are sitting around the table talking about the employment numbers, but they are talking about how expensive it was to get the stuff to put on the table or, you know, the other things that are happening. So there's just mixed data and the negative things are the ones that you talk about the most. And I think that you would need, you need a lot more sustained sort of uh, good news from the economy for things to really take hold and, and prices have to go down. That is a big, a big part of this. Inflation is clearly a big part of this. Um, so, but you need two things. You need the news to be sustained. You also have to do a better job of selling the economic progress that's happening, right? If you, if you go back to the, the maestro of all of this, there was not a single econo- a day of economic good news that the Clinton White House wasn't, you know, the day was built around that economic data. Now, I'm not suggesting some major, I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is, this is just something the administration needs to do better and to focus more on. It is, but I will give it to them. It is harder to do that in a pandemic. It is harder to do that while you are trying to usher through major pieces of legislation because the attention is not on the press conference you did about, you know, the economic data. It's on all the other. It's what, you know, the intrigue is what's Manchin doing? What's cinema doing? What are the progressives doing? What's happening? Why isn't this, you know, that's where the sort of palace intrigue is. And that's where a lot of the press has followed. So, you know, it's harder to get your message on the economic news to cut through than it, than it, you know, than you would hope it to be. If there's been a political thesis of the Biden White House since the beginning, it's been, there's a path forward here that starts with getting control of COVID. If we get control of COVID, that will allow the economy to recover. And then people will feel like life's getting back to normal and jobs are, are back and the world makes sense again, things are calm and they will see it as a welcome antidote to the chaos and confusion and you know downright unpleasantness of life under Donald Trump and will be rewarded for that. On the other hand, exit polling in Virginia shows that COVID qua COVID just on its own as an issue didn't register very highly on the list of voters' concerns. And of course, the other piece of, this is all 2020 hindsight. You and I both know people who worked in Virginia. We are not criticizing the folks who worked on the McAuliffe campaign by any means. But one piece of 2020 hindsight when it comes to COVID is we saw the California recall election where Democrats hit on the fact that, hey, you know what? Vaccine mandates are popular. Mask mandates are popular. Fighting COVID is popular. We're going to lean into that. And to some degree, it looks like the McAuliffe campaign tried to rerun that playbook in Virginia, and it didn't work as well. So where are we on the politics 
of COVID in your mind? Is it still a critical factor that underlies everything else? Is it something Democrats should be leaning into and talking about politically? What's the deal? Um, I think it's, look, you know, I think it really depends. And I think this is a really tricky one. Um, the short answer is no, I don't think you can run on COVID. I, I don't think you can. I think that people expect you to get through this. And I think that the, the shelf life, and let's hope, right? Let's hope there's no more variants. There's no more spikes. I'll knock on wood as I'm saying it. You know, let's hope that we don't have to talk about this damn thing. Sorry, ever again. Um, it is. Um, we were talking about the infrastructure bill just now. We're talking about uh, investing in dams. Um, yes, exactly. Exactly. For, that is for the, exactly for the FCC listening in. Yes, that is exactly what I meant. Um, so, you know, I think the reality is, is that, look, it depends, right? You also, during California, the numbers were higher. You had, you know, the, 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 the numbers were higher. You had the Delta variant, I believe, at that time spiking or at least still much more of a factor. And that is kind of, that's kind of shifted a little bit. You know, look, I think also it's, you know, I think we, we sometimes forget that these things don't happen in a vacuum. Yunkin was able to run it, you know, while McAuliffe was running a primary, Yunkin was able to show ads of himself shooting hoops and wearing a vest and not looking or sounding like Trump or an anti-vaxxer, right? You know, put aside what, and I'm not getting into what I think he is or what other people think he is. What I'm saying is he was able to soften his image and not look like an anti, not look like someone who is radical. And there's a, you know, there's a, big element of this that I think we often forget that campaigns matter and you know how you how you portray someone matters the timing of things matters and to your point on covid the timing was not quite there right like i mean you weren't at a variant going you had a guy who didn't look like what people are they weren't afraid of the guy right and they weren't afraid of where he was on vaccine a very different candidate in california you had one that was wearing it as a badge of honor you had one who wanted you to know that he was anti-vax. He wanted you to know that he was, you know, out on this fringe. Like that was who he was. That was his reason for being. That was not young kids' reason for being. So you just have completely different dynamics. You asked before about sort of the approval rating and the honeymoon. And I think part of that is like, look, people were, you know, pre-Afghanistan, when you look president's numbers, there were, yes, some of it was a honeymoon. But some of it was like that relief you talked about where people were like, OK, there's not a lot of noise. I mean, I remember talking with some friends where it was like, oh, we can watch the news again. It, it's normal. Things are just normal. And um, there's an element of that that then from Afghanistan on to now the sausage making I was referring to before, all of it being a lot more chaotic than what you were getting beforehand. And I think that plus the honeymoon ending was part of the reason and also as COVID started to fade, you know, now everyone's looking at the next thing. I mean, as we we often say to one another, it's not what have you done, it's what have you done for me lately. Right, um, and, right. Or what are you going to do next? Or what are you going to do next? Exactly. So. Right. And it's very telling. I mean, to your point, sometimes, sometimes we overthink things in politics. Look, we're analytical people. That's why we do yeah. what we do. And Youngkin ended the race with a 52-44 favorability rating, yeah. you know, plus eight. And McAuliffe was underwater. He was 45-51. Sometimes that's all there is to it. Now the big question, 
that I really want to tackle going forward is, is there a road back for 2022? One of the most sobering things that I saw in the post-election analysis of last Tuesday was the Cook political report. This is, this is something that if you're a real political junkie, you read. Like if, if you're listening to this and you've not heard of the Cook political report, congratulations, you're a normal human being. If you have heard of it, you need help. I need help too. You probably should not be reading stuff like this. But look, the, the, one of the best people over there is this guy, Dave Wasserman. And he tweeted out a couple of numbers that really kind of stopped me in my tracks. In New Jersey, on election day last week, Republican legislative candidates outperformed the 2020 Biden-Trump margin in their districts by about 11 points. In Virginia, same thing. The Republicans running for the legislature outperformed the margin of just a year before by about 12 points. If you saw those margin increases translated next year in 2022 across the country, when the whole U.S. House of Representatives is up for grabs again, then if you project that forward, Republicans would be expected to gain back somewhere between 45 and 50 seats. It is kind of a jaw-dropping red wave that we might be looking at. So, Adnan, I guess let's start with sort of the 30,000-foot question. These are some daunting historic patterns and current environment projections looking forward for Democrats. How concerned should Democrats be about 2022? Or do you think that there's really a fighting chance for next year? I would look, obviously it is a, it's uphill, right? It, it, right now, today, it looks like it's uphill. Um, you have redistricting, obviously another factor that is you know, not going well for Democrats so far. Um, you have redistricting, plus you have all the things you mentioned. You know, history is not on your side, right? As we've seen from, as I mentioned before, years after the presidency changes hands are almost always a, you know, I think there's been one exception, I believe in the last 20 years, um, have been pretty bad for, for the party in power, for the party who has the White House. Um, so it, is it going to be difficult? Absolutely. Is it 40 seats, 50 seats? That's still, still very hard to say, particularly as you have, you know, maybe half the states without even having sort of district lines yet. So that's really hard to, to say. Um, is there a path back? Yeah, there's a path back. I mean, you know, the, the path back, I mean, look, I think if there's one thing we've learned in the last, you know, I, I'd say eight years, maybe more is um, expect the unexpected. Um, it is, look, we, we are in uncharted waters. We, we are in an increasingly polarized, you know, just when you think the electorate can't get more polarized, people can't go to their corners more, they go even further into their corners, right? So you have just so many different dynamics. You know, you have a pandemic, you have all these just different things that are swirling around. You have Trump, right? You have just so many you know, so many big factors out there, potentially big factors, then who knows? You know, if you ask me what the path back is, the path back is, you know, frankly, doing things, um, doing things and people feeling it. Sounds obvious, but it is the path back. You know, if there are, you know, using the expression shovels in the ground next summer and the unemployment numbers continue, if people start to actually feel the impact 
of some of these things. If the Build Back Better gets passed and childcare costs go down, you know what I mean? If these things actually happen and people start feeling the effects of it, look, we, we know that what we are putting out there policy-wise, we know it is popular. We, we, you know, we know this, we know it can affect people's lives in a positive way. Um, million dollar question is, or maybe the 60 seat question is, will they see it and feel it before the election? I mean, that's the path back anyway. Will it happen? You know, my crystal ball doesn't always work, but um, is it possible? Yes. I Just to follow up on that idea of getting things done, one of the obvious fracture points in the Democratic Party has been between moderates who have a, 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 a certain vision for what getting things done is and progressives who have a much more expansive version of getting things done. And if I were to sum up in a really reductive and probably distorted way what the, what the philosophy is, is it's kind of, for progressives, it's kind of this, look, we need to excite the base. We need to excite the voters who have showed up for us before by doing things that we know they want. Now, the problem with that political thesis is in New Jersey. I mean, if you look at Phil Murphy, what did he accomplish in the last four years? He raised the minimum wage. He made earned sick leave mandatory. He boosted funding for pre-K schools and he made community college free to people who couldn't afford it. That sounds an awful lot like the Build Back Better hit list. And yet he lost a ton of ground and barely eked out a victory there. So I guess the question is, what constitutes, let me, let me, let me actually rephrase that. Is it the case that Democrats need to pass highly progressive legislation in order to excite their base? Is, is, it, is it that kind of calculus? Or is it all about sort of the bottom line that people make a kind of gestalt gut feel read of, yeah, things feel like they're going pretty well for me. And none of it matters, progressive, centrist, whatever, as long as people are feeling the economic effects in their lives come next November. I think it's a lot more about what people feel. Um, you know, I don't think most Americans view legislation from the prism of is it progressive or is it moderate? They view it from the lens of does it make things better for me? Um, to use your Murphy example, look, I, I think it's difficult to draw those parallels. As you said, you know, sometimes these things are reductive and distorted, which, by the way, may be a great band name for us if we decide to. Oh, um, absolutely. To start one. Yeah. What would I play um, in that band, though? Because I have zero. Kazoo. Musical. Absolutely. The kazoo. You would absolutely play the kazoo. There's I'd zero like people to hang on the cymbals. You know, I'm for I'm going to do cowbell. So that's fine. If you want to do symbols, it might be a little duplicative, but we'll, we'll make it work. Um, I, I would say this. Look, I'll use the Murphy example, though. I admittedly, it, I, I did not work on the race. I wasn't following it. I, I thought he was going to win relatively comfortably. Um, I did think it would be slightly closer than people thought, but not as close as it was. Um, 
When you were in New Jersey, you were sandwiched between two of the busiest media markets in the country. I guarantee you Phil Murphy did not get that much press attention in New York or Philadelphia for how much, you know, what happened, right? So you really need to rely on both your paid communication, but also people actually feeling what happened. And again, look, you have, you know, yes, you had his legislation, you know, which obviously very big, consequential, you know, big did big things, but, you know, there's always a lag in when people actually feel it. And also, look, there's all those other variables that come into play, as we mentioned, you know, frustration over Trump losing in some quarters, you know, what they're watching in that moment has a big effect. Look, we've gotten to a place where elections are so nationally driven and partisan that it does get harder if you're a governor you know, who does stuff in state to kind of get away from those sort of national headwinds. And I think more than sort of progressive or moderate or the legislation, I think what this, what his close win shows and, and in spite of all the accomplishments shows is that sometimes what doesn't matter is, is that people are so far in their partisan corners and the national environment, you know, frankly dictates where people go a lot more than what happens in your state. One of the things you talk about uh, reductive and distorted, which actually that would be a great name if I ever went to Substack for my writing. Reductive and distorted. Yeah, there you go. That's hundred percent. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, so to continue on that theme, I mean, we don't want to overread into one state's worth of results because all the states are different. There, right. there are some common threads, though. I mean, that is also what we do because everyone is trying to see. All right. What lessons can we roll forward out of Virginia and New Jersey that can give us an edge in 2022? And one of the big things that happened in Virginia was that Yonkin won suburban voters by six points. Now, that is a 14-point swing from Joe Biden's eight-point margin of victory with suburban voters. And it's been much discussed in political circles in recent years that the suburbs are where it's at, that that's that's basically the political terrain that both parties need to hold on to or capture to swing elections in their direction. Now, it's, it's controversial why we saw that swing. Republicans would say it was education. It's that we won the education messaging war and we talked about, we made it, we made hay of Terry McAuliffe's gaffe about keeping parents out of controlling education, which was kind of insane. And, you know, we, we, we generally put forward the idea that Republicans are going to be better at getting the education that suburban voters want. Democrats say, look, you can call it education, but under the surface, there were an awful lot of dog whistles going on about race. And that was the real dynamic going on in Virginia. In the wake of that election, Tory Govito and Adam Gentleson wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying basically, look, if you want to win this battle in 2022, which Republicans say is education, Democrats say is race, you need to recognize that there is going to be a fight that involves race, whether it's dog whistle or regular whistle, that is going to be on the table. And Democrats need a smarter, more uniting way to talk about race issues and how we're all in this together. What's your perception on this? You run campaigns in different political terrain 
all over the country. Do Democrats need a better way, a better framework for talking about racially tinged issues like education? I don't think we should be afraid to engage in this, right? I think one of the mistakes we make is backpedaling away from this. Look, we are talking about whether or not to teach things like slavery in our schools, right? At the end of the day, it's not it's not even a dog whistle anymore, right? Like I, I it, it is a microphone, you know, blasted at the highest levels, right? Like this is not about, you know, it's not even subtle anymore. Um, Republicans haven't won on education in the 20 years I've been doing this because usually they want to cut funding for education and not actually do anything to actually help children. This is this is a frankly a largely, you know, this this issue was created to help divide people, to divide people and distract them. And did it work to some extent? Yeah, you also had the gaffe that you mentioned before. Um, I will say this, they put Republicans put a lot of stock in school board races and things like this where around the country where they thought they were going to win on CRT and didn't. Right. So this is a little bit more mixed. You had the perfect storm of all the gaffes and other stuff. Look, to your to your other question on sort of suburban versus urban voters, I, I, I think it is a little too simplistic to look at it. As you know, as we have to do the suburbs and only the suburbs, which a lot of analysts have suggested, because as you look at these elections increasingly, you know, they a large amount of this is the base. Look, if bases all voted, if everybody voted, Democrats would win all the time. Right. Like right, we you have, wouldn't have the, a job. the actual numbers. Right. No, I'd be out of work. <laughs> um, um, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's a both and. Right. You know, you can't you have to compete in the suburbs, but you're probably going to win, you know, in cities and in your base, in your base overall. So it's um, always a lot more complicated than it sounds. You mentioned earlier that I mean, look, when you, when you sit down to plan out a race as a campaign manager, you start by trying to assume what your vote goal is. You you sort of say, look. You, you, here's history. Here's what that tells us. Here's the general environment. You talk to your smart consultants, people like you, and you say, all right, how many votes is it going to take for us to win? And then you start planning a map of, of how you're going to get there. It's, it's not rocket science, actually. I mean, it, it is, but it's, it's that the basic idea isn't. And you mentioned a moment ago that actually Phil Murphy in New Jersey got above his 2017 vote total. Terry McAuliffe in Virginia got 200,000 votes more than his 2017 vote total. I haven't talked to their campaign managers, but I would bet that they got pretty close to their internal vote goals. The problem was Republicans way, way exceeded in terms of turnout. So one of the things that's happened in elections recently is that campaigns have focused more and more on turnout. As the number of swing voters in the country has decreased, the reliance on, all right, can we just, as you just said, could, could we get the people who we know are with us to just turn out? That, that seems to be the, the better winning path, the better investment for campaigns. I guess the, the question for you is, what seems to have hamstrung Democrats to some degree last Tuesday is they didn't have a convenient villain 
a good motivating factor. They didn't have Donald Trump on the ballot. As you look ahead to 2022 and you work on races across the country and trying to get that kind of turnout going that Democrats are going to need to have a fighting chance, how do Democrats do that? How do they motivate the turnout from their side without Donald Trump on the ballot? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a good question. Um, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, if you look at the correlation, I mean, you look at sort of every midterm and you look at why, you know, we've talked a lot about midterms after the presidency changes. You look at why at its absolute base foundation, why the turnout dynamic goes with the other the party that's out of power. It's anger. Right. It, it is because people who have just lost whose party has just lost are angry. In this case, we mentioned before, part of it has to do with people feeling the election was stolen. But part of it is just, you know, our guy is out of office and we're mad about it, right? And you're right. In 2018, the inverse happened where Democrats were taken to the streets and they went out and they voted and they were mad and they came out and record numbers and huge seismic shifts in seats and legislative races and everything, right? Just, you know, up and down the ballot. Uh, and that uh, that dynamic is, has obviously you know shifted quite a, quite a great deal. I think there is a lot of this is going to be fought on on individual campaign by campaign basis. A lot of it. Um, I think that you have to figure out how to inspire and motivate your base. It's not always a villain, but it has to be something that communicates something that that strikes them on an on an emotional level not just an intellectual level where we often fall short and i'm sure you've had this conversation on numerous uh shows where we often fall short is we excel at make you know we we often as a party try to make people think republicans are very good at making them feel and you know when you know, whether it's CRT or it's immigration or it's, you know, gun rights, whatever it is, Republicans have a way of making very simple emotional arguments, whether, you know, and frankly, finding a villain uh, and, and, you know, or a slew of villains. And, um, you know, I think on our end, we, we have to, one, figure out how to do that, but we can't be afraid to push back. Like there's a lot of different interests and a lot of, of, of things that we can go at them on um, that, frankly, we just shouldn't shy away from. I mean, you know, when you are on the right side of certain issues, you should not be afraid, you know, to to, you know, take that fight to people and and, uh, you know, and win them. I've joked on the show before that Democrat is an old Greek word that means repeats facts smugly. So what's your favorite <laughs> Elizabeth Warren story? Oh boy. Um, I have a lot that you can repeat on the air. Uh, you know what? It still goes back to, uh, election night. I mean, it was just something else to have won that race. And, you know, a, a, a few of us that had been together with her from the beginning, uh, were up awfully late watching, you know, waiting for Romney to concede and watching Obama. And there was just something to that moment, uh, that was particularly amazing. It was actually my birthday the next morning too, so it really resonated. I would say that and the first um, convention, um, just going out, you know, for you know, in between speech prep, walking to it and realizing like what had just happened. Like you know, we were all of a sudden in the era of selfies with, you know, uh, you know, with you know, politicians like her who are, you know, not even a politician, but someone who's sort of become sort of larger than life and watching that from, 
you know, starting uh, the campaign, working on it from the early days when there was maybe 12 of us um, to that point, to those points was, was fa fascinating. Uh, plus I'll just say one other thing, maybe the highlight that I ignored was, uh, my children have gone to visit the office and she's always been absolutely phenomenal and, uh, gave my older daughter a tour of the Senate and it was, uh, something she'll take with her the rest of her life. And I will too. She's, um, she's really relaxed and, and surprisingly funny, like in a wry kind of way behind the scenes. I, I, I found that very hard in her presidential campaign. I, I only, I, I'm not like you. It's not like I'm, I'm like behind the scenes with her all the time. I've only met her a couple of times on the campaign trail, you know, like behind the scenes, but I, I was always impressed by that, that she's like, she's actually the kind of person, you know, the proverbial in politics, you'd want to have a beer with them. She, she's actually an awesome person to have a beer with. Um, all right. So look, you yeah, do a ton 100%. of campaign. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, she's, she's a real, she's a real human being. Um, yeah. All right. So look, you do a whole bunch of campaigns, like I said, around the country, high profile. What is your favorite ad piece of campaign literature or mail that someone who is not you, someone who's not your company has done in the last few years? What's really stood out to you as, oh, this was brilliant. I wish, I wish we had done this. Oh, that is a great question. One that I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to answer. Um, you should have given me some notice on that one, Matt. Well, I'm, I'm throwing um, you a curveball. You're you're one of the top people in the game. I've been telling people the whole episode that you know you're you're like you're Mister. I'll tell you mine. I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll let you filibuster yeah. for a second. I mean, I know this is quaint. I, I I like this. It's trite. It's trite. But that Doors ad from Putnam's firm. Um, what was her name? Who worked for? Who works at Mark Putnam's firm? Um, who did the the MJ Hagar ad? Uh, in 2018, the the helicopter doors and then the doors constantly being slammed in her face. That one, it was really memorable. It was uh, set to "Gimme Shelter" by the Rolling Stones. I don't know any anything along those lines. TV, social media, mail, anything, anything really caught your eye? Um, no, look, I've seen a lot of great TV ads. I saw and you know a negative ad that I saw in the Georgia we were doing Warnock, and I saw one. Uh, for, you know, against Ossoff, actually. And it was a, a little bit incendiary. I won't get into what it was, but like if you turned it one way, uh, this is not a great uh, uh, one for radio because you can't see what I'm doing. But if you turned it one way, you saw an image of him. And if you turned it another way, it was sort of the negative image. And I thought that was fascinating. It was sort of like a almost a hologram effect with it. And wow. I just like a magic eye type where, deal. Yeah, like a magic eye type thing. And to me, as someone who does print, you know, that was that was particularly well done. Wow. Yeah, I um, that way, you know, it's as I think back, I mean, the doors, that's a good one. That's a really good one. I remember Bill Richardson had had one in the. 08 cycle where he was uh, in for a job interview and it's like some some HR person on their lunch hour and they're like so you rattles off like Bill Richardson said every job in America like in politics he's like oh, oh I saw that the job yeah what makes you think you're qualified to be president all right I could do this literally all day uh, with Adnan Muslim it's it's always fascinating I always feel like I've learned something when I've had a conversation with you and then I have to go off and like, think about all the things you said. I'm probably going to have to listen to this back. You can call me later. You know that. Well, I, I, I'm going to. You know <laughs> I'm going to. It's I, You're, you're going to regret saying that later. All right. I have got to let you go. Adnan Muslim, Deliver Strategies, uh, partner, long 
history and politics, the, the man that uh, people, people listen to, and I do too. Thanks so much for sharing all of your insights. Thanks for having me.